Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Liz just read, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We're continuing our series today, Kingdom Come, in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And today we come to a passage that is quintessentially Paul and quintessentially pastoral. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And Paul puts before us in this passage just a few expectations for the church, initially for the church in Thessalonica, but by the Holy Spirit as well, expectations for us. He wants something from us. He pleads with them and he pleads with us for a few things, for us to do a few things for him and for the benefit of the kingdom, but also you would say, initially anyway, for the benefit of the, the Thessalonians themselves and their spiritual growth. There's something that's going on in the New Testament that is just marvelous. There's this great relationship that's described in the New Testament. I want to take a moment and unpack this a little bit before we get into the text. It's a relationship between leader and follower. It's a relationship between pastor and parishioner. It's a relationship between overseers and those in the church that are overseen. And Paul is crystal clear about what overseers or elders need to bring to the table in terms of character and conduct in the church. And what Paul says about elders is that they need to be men above reproof. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. They need to be men who are self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome not a lover of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can read all about that in 1 Timothy 3 and also Titus 1. Paul expects that of leaders in the church. And let me, let me say this to everybody in the church. You as the church are right to expect that of your leaders. You are right to expect these things of us. Your elders are not perfect. They're not but they need to be honorable and they need to be above reproach in these things. Another thing that Paul expects elders to do is to pray for the church. And he models prayer throughout this book. Paul prays for churches. The apostle Peter tells us as elders to pray for the church, but also shepherd and exercise oversight over the flock. The author of Hebrews writes this. You can read this on the screen. He tells church congregations to obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So there's this mutually beneficial relationship between the overseers, the elders, and the rest of the church. And, and this passage should be sobering for all of us. It should be sobering for all of us, but especially for elders, elders in this room. Paul, George, Mike, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Tony, the five of us, we are watching over souls, the author says. We will have to give an account for our faithfulness in that task. That's a big deal. So the New Testament has expectation for leaders, lots of expectations and high expectations. But I want you to know as well that the New Testament, especially Paul, gives some expectations of those who are led in the church as well. 
the church at large. He doesn't want the ministry or the tasks of the church to be located with just a few elders. That needs to be spread to all the people of the church. We all have duties. We all have responsibilities before the Lord as the church. And elders, listen to me for a second, elders. We are right to expect certain things of the church, to ask of the church that they follow through with certain things. Paul didn't have any hesitation doing that with the Thessalonians. Paul expects all of us in the church to be a certain kind of Christian and for us collectively to be a certain kind of church. And this message today is a personal plea from the Apostle Paul for us as a church to be one, two, three, and four. You can see these in your notes and write these down as we go. The message today is entitled A Pastoral Plea for the church. This is a pastoral plea from the Apostle Paul for the church. Paul pleads for us as a church to be one, two, three, and four. Here's the first. Paul pleads with the church to be a people of prayer. Paul pleads with the church to be a people of prayer. Simple outline this morning with just some basic concepts, but I trust the sovereignty of God in this and his leading of the Spirit bringing us to this passage this morning. I guess we needed to hear this. So even though it's simple, this is basic, good truth for us to chew on. Paul wants the church. Paul wants us. Let me personalize it for you. Paul wants Harvest Decatur to be a people of prayer, to be a people of prayer. And to that you might say, okay, prayer for what, Pastor? What do we pray for? What do we pray about? Well, I, I mean, I could give you a lot of things, but Paul gives some specifics here, some helpful instructions. So let's look at this. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Paul says, finally, brothers, and only a pastor says finally, and then goes on for 18 more verses. <laughs> finally, brothers, pray for us, Paul says, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So Paul asks for prayer in three categories. Let's look at these one by one. First of all, he prays, he asks for prayer, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Paul asks that the logos of the kurios, the word of the Lord, would speed ahead, would accelerate, would move forward. What is the logos of the kurios? What is the word of the Lord? What's he referencing here? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the message of Jesus Christ, of the kurios, the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Paul's utmost hope, his greatest thrill in life is to see people come to Christ, is to see people get saved. And so he says here, pray for that church. Pray for it. Pray that it would speed ahead the gospel. Pray that the word would Move, here's the Greek for this, okay? Treko, treko, speed ahead. That word literally means to run. Pray that it would run. Y'all remember that parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son and the father sees the prodigal son a long way off and he starts running towards him? Y'all remember that? Do y'all, prodigal son? Okay, that is a shocking development in that story, by the way. You know why? Because... Hebrew middle-aged men don't run. That's what kids do. So, I mean, oh, there's so many implications of that. I don't have time to preach that right now, but 
This idea that he would run towards this prodigal son, this profligate son who had spent all of his money and lived so rebelliously. All that to say this, that same word, run, that's that's the word treko. That's the same word that's used here. Paul says, pray that the gospel will run. Pray that the gospel will spread around the word with, with world with speed and with vitality. May the gospel be fast like Usain Bolt is fast. May the gospel be shot around the world like a bat out of hell because the gospel is the only thing that saves people from hell. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray like that, Harvest Decatur? Do you now? Oh God, would you let the gospel spread in our city and impact lives? Would you make it fast and speed to the hearts of men and change them? I want to pray more like that. Do you pray for your preacher like that on Sunday morning? Would you help Pastor Tony to preach the word, preach the gospel so that people might get saved? I know some of you do, and oftentimes as we meet me and the worship team, that prayer is communicated to the Lord. And I just want you to know, worship team, when you pray that, that means so much to me. And, you know, Paul's here saying, pray for me to preach the gospel that it will speed and be effective in people's lives. If Paul needs prayer, uh, how much more do I need prayer? I need prayer too. Pray for your pastor. Paul also prays that the word of the Lord may be honored. Secondly, why would Paul say that? Why would Paul ask for prayer like that? Well, he tells us because some people don't honor the gospel. They don't believe it. Look at the end of verse two. Some people don't have faith in the gospel. Therefore, pray. Pray that it would speed ahead and be honored, that it would be received by the hearts of those who hear it. Not everybody's gonna receive it, but some are. Pray for that. And then thirdly, Paul asks for prayer that he himself would be delivered from wicked men and from wickedness. Let me ask you a question, Harvest Decatur. You guys are Bible scholars many of you. Did wicked and evil men ever try to hurt Paul? You've read the book of Acts. All the time. All the time they did. And so it's understandable that Paul would pray, pray that I get safely from city to city and get the gospel out because they're, they're aiming for me. Satan's coming for me. And you might think, You know, that's Paul's prayer for himself. You might think, well, Pastor Tony doesn't have that problem. Nobody's trying to kill him and run him out of town. Not yet, anyway. But you're wrong in this sense. I need need it. I need prayer just like Paul needs prayer. The same Satan who tried to oppose Paul and ran him out of town in the first century is still active and alive today and opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. His tactics may be different. But he's still there, and he's still opposing the gospel and the preaching of the word, too, more generally. I was at a conference this last week, a GCC conference, and it was very encouraging. I heard a number of pastors just share their hearts and similar struggles to me. And this one pastor said this about his preaching duty. He said, preaching every week, every Sunday is kind of like giving birth to a baby on Sunday And then finding out on Monday morning that you're pregnant again. (laughs) And you can imagine in a room full of pastors, 
That resonated with us, yeah. It's a difficult work. It's a hard work. It's a demanding work. And there's a lot of responsibility. Donald Coggin, who's the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said this once, said it's the pastor's job to feed the sheep, not entertain the goats. That's the gig. That's the gig for a pastor. And I don't, I don't tell you these things to feel, so you feel sorry for me or so that you excuse my weaknesses as a leader. I say this so that you would pray for me. And while you're at it, pray for Pastor Ryan and his duties on Wednesday night, teaching Harvest students. Pray for your elders. Pray for the preachers as well who fill this pulpit, who in many cases, in all cases, are opposing Satan by the preaching of the gospel. That is not an easy thing. And while you're at it, pray that our whole church, pray that our whole church would proclaim the gospel, even in spite of Satan's attacks and Satan's attempts to stop us. Sometimes I think that gospel proclamation is done better at the water cooler at your workplace than it is here on Sunday morning. I really do. Because, you know, people might come here and hear the gospel preached and be like, oh, pastor, he's got to say that. He's the pastor. But when they talk to you at work and you reinforce the same things and say the same things, there's power in that. So I'm not saying this is just my job or Ryan's job or your elder's job. This is our duty, gospel proclamation. And Paul pleads with the church to be a people of prayer, to keep praying for this. Can we be a people of prayer, Harvest Decatur? Can we now? Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying for your prodigal kids who have walked away from the Lord. Don't stop praying for our broken city that desperately needs the gospel and for unbelievers that you know that need the gospel. Keep praying. Keep praying. Come on now. Can I get an amen? I mean, we didn't didn't put prayer as our pillar and put a marquee of it out in our foyer just to be cool. Prayer's not really that cool. But it pleases the Lord and it obeys the scriptures. And Let's keep praying. Here's something else. Keep believing. Write that down as number two. People, Paul pleads with the church to be a people of prayer, but also a people of faith. Paul pleads with the church to be a people of faith. Can I sing a song from the 80s that might help reinforce that for you this morning? Don't stop believing. Y'all with me now? Huh? Have true words ever been spoken by a band called Journey in 1981? And I'm pretty sure that when Journey wrote that song, they weren't thinking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But I want to hijack that song for you this morning. And tell you to do this. Don't stop believing. Don't quit on faith. Keep trusting God. Keep depending on God. Paul pleads with the church to be a people of faith. Here's what Paul says. Here's Paul's plea in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. It's interesting. The end of verse 2, look at this in your Bibles. Paul says, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Not all, but you know, if you try to depend on the reactions of men and how they respond to your preaching of the gospel, that is a fail, okay? 
Not all people will have faith, but the Lord is faithful, okay? Please God and forget about man. Let God be true and every man a liar, okay? The Lord is faithful, Paul says. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. That word guard is the Greek word phuloso. Great word. It means to watch or guard or protect. For example, just similar usage. The shepherds in Luke 2, when uh, the angels came, they were watching their flocks by night. They were phuloso. They were guarding them. They were protecting them. When the angels came and told them that Jesus was born, Jesus said later in John 12, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, phuloso, guard it, protect it. They keep it, guard it. Actually, this word, phuloso, it has a military nuance to it oftentimes. For instance, it's used in Acts chapter 12 when Herod locked up Peter in prison. Herod sent four squads of soldiers to guard, phuloso, Peter when he was in prison because Peter had a reputation for breaking out of prison. And that's a good word picture for you there. God will establish and fuloso. He will protect you from the evil one, Paul says. Let me clarify here. The Lord, the Lord is faithful, church. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Do you believe that? He will. Now, okay, quick caveat here. Because Paul was just talking in verse 2 about evil men that are opposing him, and certainly Satan's behind that. So is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth here? Like, he will protect you, he won't protect you. He will protect you, he won't protect you. What, you know, what gives, Paul? What? Well, let me add to that perplexity. Because Paul has said already that the Thessalonians were suffering greatly in their city. And surely the evil one is behind that. In fact, Paul said, and you all remember this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said that Satan had blocked him and his convoy from even coming to Thessalonica. So, you know, does Jesus guard us? Does he protect us from the evil one or not? What gives, Paul? Which is it? Protection or not protection? Well, let me address that. Here's how Gene Green explains it in his commentary. You can read this on the screen. He says, this promise that we will be protected from the evil one, this promise is hardly meant to convey that the church will not suffer, but rather affirms that in the midst of their suffering, their faithful patron, the Lord, will strengthen them so that they will not fall. He will shield them from the ultimate shame of succumbing to the wiles of their adversary. The book of Jude says this. It says that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Look, let me, let me just synthesize these thoughts for you. The Lord has not promised to keep you from all harm, and the Lord has not promised to keep you from all of Satan's attacks. He has not. If somebody sold you that, told you that or sold that to you, if somebody said, if you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true and life will be easy peasy and there won't be any problems and until Jesus comes back, it'll just be smooth sailing. That person lied to you. God never promised that. But what God has promised is to eternally secure you in himself. That's the promise. 
That's what this means. That protection from Satan, God has promised you because Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the promise. That's the protection from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. He will do this, church. Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. If your faith gets compromised, if you start to doubt these things, Satan is winning. And you're not holding fast to the scriptures and the promises that God delivered to you. Sure, Satan's going to score some victories in your life. He is. Sure, Satan's going to get the best of you from time to time. But I want you to know that his victories, those are the last vestiges of a defeated enemy. And he's going down. And he knows it. That's why he's fighting. So don't stop believing. Paul wants us as a church, he wants Harvest Decatur to be a people of faith. People of prayer, people of faith. Write this down as well, number three. He wants us to be a people of obedience. He wants us to be a people of obedience. Verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, says Paul. We have confidence in the Lord about you. I was thinking about this statement this last week, yesterday, and I was thinking to myself, do do I have confidence in Harvest Decatur the way that Paul has confidence in the church in Thessalonica? I was working through this and Even collectively, I was thinking, you know, do we have confidence as elders that our church is obeying the things that Paul commands? Like Paul has confidence that the Thessalonian church is obeying his commands. Do you want to know my answer to that? Yes, I do. I do. I have confidence that we as a church... Not perfectly, but we are committed collectively to obeying these commands, obeying the scriptures. And you know what? That made me happy (laughs) yesterday. It It did. It made me happy to know that I'm a part of a church. I get to lead a church of people that are serious about obedience, obedience to the commands of the Lord. Maybe you're doing a good job with that. Now, can we grow in that? Yes, we can. Don't get cocky, Harvest Decatur, okay? We can all grow in this. I can grow in this. But I want to encourage you. I have confidence in the Lord about you, just like Paul has confidence in the Lord about the church in Thessalonica. Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now, just a clarifying statement here. Paul Paul has every right to demand obedience of the Thessalonians in this letter. Here's why. Because absolute obedience, too. Because Paul's not just a pastor. He's also an apostle. He's one of the apostles. And he God used him, as well as other apostles, to write the scriptures. So obedience to his command is essentially obedience to the scripture. It's essentially obedience to the Lord. So I just want to, it is different. As we read this, it's different. My role here as your pastor versus Paul's role as pastor slash 
apostle in the first century to Thessalonica. And it, it, you might, well, how do we apply this at Harvest Decatur? How, how do we apply these words in verse 4? Because, let's face it, Pastor Tony ain't the apostle Paul. Okay, he's just a humble, lowly pastor here at Harvest Decatur. Well, here, here's how it applies, okay? Here's how you apply verse 4. Everybody listening? To the extent that I and the elders teach truths that square with Scripture, you need to obey that. Everybody with me? When I was a kid, my pastor used to say all the time, all the time, search the Scriptures for yourself and make sure that what I'm telling you is correct. And that was good. I'm glad he did that. It put the onus on us to, okay, we, you know, we can't just follow blindly. We need to actually search the scriptures for our, ourselves and make sure that what's being said here is correct. Even the Bereans in the book of Acts, you remember the Bereans? You know, Paul commends them. Luke commends them. The Bible commends them for searching to make sure what Paul was saying was accurate. And Paul's an apostle. If that was true for Paul, how much more does that need to be true for Pastor Tony and Pastor Ryan? Anybody else who fills this pulpit? But here's what I'm trying to say. To the extent that what I or the elders teach you squares with Scripture, you need to obey it. And, and certainly, you can search the Scriptures yourself and obey them, and I commend that. You guys know I do. But, but remember, I mean, the Holy Spirit has given different gifts, gifts of teaching and abilities here. So, so you know, there's something to that, the teaching of the Scripture, the empowering of elders and leaders to to teach the word of God and to the extent that that is done scripturally and accurately, you need to obey it. And let me say this too while I'm on this topic. Can we be a church, please, that prioritizes obedience of scripture above what is culturally acceptable or socially palatable? Can we do that? I'm tired of hearing about pastors and hearing about churches that, that poo-poo scripture and elevate in our world and before others those things that might be more culturally acceptable, as if we have to equivocate, as if we have to hem and haul around about those convictions that we hold to, as if we have to kowtow to that which is socially acceptable. I don't care what's socially acceptable. I care about obeying God. Do we fear God or do we fear men? And that's what it comes down to. I'll give you an example of this. Deep breath. Our president last week got in front of 300 million Americans and told them that abortion is wrong. And I'll be honest, I, I don't like everything our president does or says. He's a confusing person. But he was right to say that. You want my view on that? I abominate abortion. It is murder in the eyes of God. I don't care if it's legal or illegal before. It's wrong and it's evil in the eyes of God. Just say it. Just say it. Children made in the image of God, murdered in the room. That is wrong. And let's hold to that and let... Let's be careful here before we get all high and mighty. 
Let's do a quick gut check, all of us in this room. How are you doing, Christian, obeying the scriptures? Following what Jesus says, what the apostles say, what the New Testament says, what the Old Testament says. How are you doing with that? You know, it's, you know how it is. It's easy to condemn the sin of another person that you don't struggle with, but then kind of dismiss those sins that are a real struggle in your own heart. There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called hypocrisy. How are you doing with obedience to the scriptures? Is there something in your life right now? Just quickly pray to the Holy Spirit right now in the quietness of your own soul. Is there something in your life right now that the Holy Spirit has been convicting you and convicting you and convicting you and you have failed to repent, you have failed to turn from that, you have failed to submit yourself fully to the teachings of the scriptures? And if that conviction's there, even right now as I'm talking, you need to obey. God wants obedience. Paul wants obedience here. Paul's plea is for churches to be obedient to the scripture. Prayer, faith, obedience. One final thing, number four. Actually, two, Paul combines two things in verse five. Paul wants us to be a people of love and endurance. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I found something to be interesting as I've you know, we've been preaching through First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians for the last few months. And, you know, th- these are the most prayerful. Here's what I've found. These are the most prayerful of Paul's letters. And it's funny because there's, I mean, Paul talks about eschatology in First and Second Thessalonians. He talks about some deep theological matters. These are deep books, but they're also prayerful books. Paul spends a lot of time talking about prayer in these books, but Paul also spends time in these books just praying. And that's what he does here. Verse 5, he prays. He prays for the Thessalonians and he prays for us. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Here's what Paul pleads for in the church. Here's what he prays for in verse 5. Two things. First of all, he prays that the Lord Jesus would direct our hearts to the love of God. That word direct, it's the Greek word katathuno, It's a very rare word in the New Testament. I had a hard time really understanding what this word means. So it's rare in the New Testament, but in the LXX, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this word is used a handful of times in Chronicles to speak of the kings who either either set their hearts on God or fail to set their hearts on God. For instance, the the Septuagint, the LXX, says of Jehoshaphat, a good king, that he set his heart, katathuno, to seek God. Good king set his heart on God. But Rehoboam, the wicked son of Solomon, did not, katathuno, did not set his heart to seek the Lord. 
You know, that's always fascinated me. Maybe you've been fascinated by that too. You read about these kings and maybe they get a sentence, maybe they get two, maybe they get a couple paragraphs in the Old Testament. It's like their whole life, their whole kingdom, everything they did is boiled down to just a few things. Did they serve God or not? Did they obey God or not? Did they set their heart on God or not? As if to teach you, like, your life's gonna come down to that too. And so... Did they obey God? Not. Did they set? Katathuno. Now, Paul's prayer here in 2 Thessalonians is a little different than what we see with the kings in the Old Testament. He doesn't tell us to set our hearts, katathuno, on God. He prays that God would set, that God would katathuno our hearts towards the love of God. Lord Jesus, please set their hearts on the love of God. What does that mean? What, What does that look like? What's he praying for? Well, what he's praying is that God would override our proclivities as human beings. He's praying that God would override our our propensity towards sin and rebellion. That God would so direct our hearts to the love of God that we would know that we are loved by God, we would act like we were loved by God, and we would love others like God loves us. That's what he's praying. That's a big ask of the Lord right there. That's a big prayer. Husbands, you want to love your wives as Christ loved the church? You pray this prayer for them. Go pray that Jesus would direct her heart to love God. Pray, Jesus, would you direct my wife's heart to the love of God? May she know that she is loved. May she live like she is loved. And may she love others in the way that God loved her. Wives, you can reciprocate. Pray and say, Jesus, would you direct his heart to the love of God? May he know that he's loved. May he live like he's loved. And may he love others like God loves him. This is a prayer worth praying every night for the rest of your life. This is a prayer worth praying in your small groups that we would, that our hearts collectively even would be directed towards the love of God, that we would know that we are loved and that we would love others in the way that we are loved. And then this, here's another prayer. Paul prays for endurance at the end of verse five, that we would bask in that love of God and live our lives in such a way as if we're loved And then he prays that our hearts would be directed towards the steadfastness of Christ. There's that word again, steadfastness. Paul loves that word. He's used it three times in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He uses it 16 times in the New Testament. Obviously, this is important to Paul, that we are steadfast, that we endure. And his wording is interesting here. He prays, may the Lord direct your hearts. Look at verse five. May the Lord direct your hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. What does that mean, Pastor Tony? Does that mean that our hearts should love and meditate on Christ's steadfastness? Direct our hearts to the steadfastness, like we should think about his steadfastness? Or does it mean that our hearts should imitate Christ steadfast, that we should be steadfast because Christ was steadfast to us? Answer, yes, all of the above. Because Paul knows that your only hope for steadfastness as a follower of Jesus is if you know Jesus and if Christ is helping you to be steadfast. And so this is all-encompassing. Christ loved us first, and so we love him. Christ was steadfast, stood before the Romans, and allowed them to crucify him to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin. He took that punishment. He took it, and he endured suffering. 
Why? So that we might be saved. Therefore, because he was steadfast for you, you be steadfast for him. You stand for him. Paul prays for the Thessalonians that their hearts would be directed towards the love of God and towards steadfastness of Christ. And I'll just tell you, Harvest Decatur, this is my prayer for you. As Paul prayed for them, I, I'm praying this prayer for us. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen, 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 amen. I'll close with this. Last week I used an illustration from Fiddler on the Roof. I'd like to circle back with that musical if I could as we close. For those of you who haven't seen this movie, I'm going to keep using illustrations from it until you see it. Okay? For those of you who have seen the movie, you'll, you'll recognize this scene. There's a scene in the movie where the protagonist, Tevye, he tries to come with gr- to grips with his daughter's love for her fiancé. And he's, you know, like a lot of fathers, struggling with that, the loss of their little girls. And her justification for why she's marrying this guy is, I love him. And that puzzles him. And in a moment of whimsical reflection, he asks his wife of 25 years, Golda, Golda, do you love me? And Golda replies in shock and confusion, do I what? (laughs) Tevye says, he actually sings, do you love me? And Golda says, do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in our town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lay down. Maybe it's indigestion. (laughs) Well, Tevye doesn't let her off the hook. He says, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? Golda says, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love now? Tevye says, Golda, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. She says, so was I. Jewish range marriage. Tevye says, but my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda, do you love me? Golda says to herself this time, for For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? So Tevye says, hopefully this time, then you love me? (laughs) Golda says, I suppose I do. Tevye says, And I suppose I love you too. 
25 years of faithfulness, endurance, sacrificing for one another. I know that's not the modern definition of love because the modern definition of love is wrong. Sometimes in the middle of the day when I'm kind of hungry, I'll go up to Sonia and say, do you love me? I am hungry. It never works. What's Paul praying for here in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5? What's this love of God that he asks Jesus to direct our hearts towards? It's a love of commitment. It's a love of obedience. It's a love of action. It's a love of longevity. It's a love of endurance. It's a love of steadfastness. And also it's a love that spreads to others. You remember what Jesus said to Peter after his resurrection? Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. All right. Get to work. Feed my sheep. Love those that I love like I love them. Paul's prayer for us as a church, Paul's plea for us is that we would be a people of prayer, a people of faith, a people of obedience, and a people of love and endurance, love and steadfastness. Let's be this kind of church, Harvest Decatur. Amen? Let's be that kind of church. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love one another in this church because you first loved us. And God, we desire to be the kind of church that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We want to be this kind of church, Lord. God, help us to be a people of prayer, of unshakable faith. Help us, Lord, to be people of obedience, quick to repent, quick to turn from sin, growing in faith, growing in obedience. And Lord, I pray that the love of God would be so manifest in this place, in our actions, in our worship, in our long-suffering with one another, in our steadfastness, in Christ Jesus, this prayer that Paul prayed for the church in verse 5. Lord, I, I echo those words and I pray that for us. Lord, set our hearts, set our hearts in the love of God and the steadfastness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for saving our souls. All of these things, Lord, that we've looked at today, we don't want to do them in our own power and the power of the flesh. Holy Spirit, do your mighty work. Change us. Help us to be doers, not just hearers of your word. Help us to implement these things that we've learned and live them out. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's declare our love for him.